0: You are listening to the Maranatha Teachings Podcast, a ministry of Maranatha Church. Maranatha Church is a house church in coastal Virginia with members that span over four generations. Our Bible time together is both instructional and conversational. I'm the pastor and teacher, Nicholas Larum. Welcome to the Dialogue. Last week we shared on You Will Be My Witnesses, and I believe the subtitle was How Pentecost Empowers Us for Evangelism. This is part two of that, and not that it needs a defense, but to a degree so you understand why I'm taking these measured steps, is that what we have lived in, some of us, most of our life, or if not all of our life, is ordinary. In the sense that we've always known it to be so. And yet, the church of Jesus Christ, the New Testament body, had a birthday, had a beginning. And it was momentous. And it set the course for the world changing in measurable ways. The world we live in today, regardless of what everyone else is saying, we have issues, we have problems. But trust me, you really wouldn't want to live 100 years ago or 200 years ago because most of us would be at the lower end of the scale of economics and with a quality of life that you would not even recognize. Most of us have lived most of our lives in the United States, and we, even at the lower end of the scale, live in a quality of life That is nigh unto unimaginable to the greater population of the entire planet. There are measurable degrees by which humanity and the planet has improved over the past two millennia. And and an objective, strong case can be made that a great reason for that was Christianity. He changed the world. We live in a changed and changing planet that, yes, is still broken, but it's a changed and changing planet. So the two words that were bouncing around in my brain as we were worshiping were the extraordinary wonderful, because we are saddled with the tension of navigating what is an ordinary life. Whatever life you're living, to you, at some point in time, it becomes ordinary. That's the life you live, you know. Uh, I recall as a younger man walking by fast food places, thinking to myself, "Boy, it'd be nice to be able to afford, to be able to buy cheap fast food." One day, when I'm making more than just what it takes to pay my rent and buy some groceries, I might be able to treat myself to like a Wendy's burger or something. I've never done that, right? And then that grows into, you know, the chain restaurant. It's nicer than the burger place, but it's still a chain restaurant. It's not like a highfalutin place. And one day, you know, because, and, and you get there, and guess what?
1: You're not satisfied. Right.
0: <laughs> well, see, that's the thing. It becomes the ordinary, and here's the tensor. We were built to live on hope. Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, if in in this life only we have hope, we are of all men most miserable. So if you take the implication of that, that means that even in the next life, the next life, the next stage in the cosmic story that builds the greatest portent of our hope, we have hope. that's a wonder. The difficulty is that we can become and and we cannot afford to lose focus on the hope, on those future things that God has promised us, of the rectifying of all things. If, If we cannot hang on to the ultimate vindication of God's rightness, as if he needed to prove himself, but the day is coming when it will all be set square, See, there I went. I used the Masonic term. I'm not even a Mason. It's going to be set straight, okay? And, you know, it's kind of interwoven in our Americanism. It's kind of hard to avoid those things. We'll forgive it Yeah. this time. We'll forgive it this time, yeah. So, if we don't have that expectation of ultimate justice, then unless you don't care, you know, unless you're just completely self-absorbed and it's all about me, without hope, life becomes impossible,
1: Unbearable.
0: Unbearable. Absolutely. Okay. The other side of that coin, though, is if if we if all our focus is there, you know, I am I am stuck in my ordinary. I got to pay the bills. I've got, you know, I've got health issues. I've got relationship issues. My car broke down. I don't like who's in charge. I do, you know, whatever the case may be. And we're all stuck in. Oh, it's like, well, when Jesus comes back, it's all gonna be okay but it'll be okay. It'll be okay. It'll be okay. And we forget that where we live was the hope of another people. What we're living is the extraordinary, wonderful of the promise to a kingdom that was ripped apart, dispossessed, and dispersed across the entire planet. A people that they were told for centuries, that they are the distinct, elect, chosen people of the Most High Creator God of heaven and earth. Out of all the peoples of the earth, we read it tonight, out of all the peoples of the earth, I chose you. And I'm not making this up. This comment I got from Jewish people, oy vey, you should choose somebody else. You know, <laughs> it's like, thanks a lot. Okay. We are living in the hope of a people we've been grafted to. Thank
1: and, you, Lord.
0: And it's a tendency. Amen. It's a tendency. I live it. I live this tendency. I've lived this tendency of, you know, when I was a kid, the, the, the USSR and the United States, we were going to blow each other up. And it was a toss-up between Gorbachev and, uh, and Kennedy being the Antichrist.
1: And people were building... Uh
0: uh, bomb uh, shelters. Bomb
1: shelters and their cellars. Yeah. In, the, in their cellars.
0: Which, you know, to this Arkansas boy made sense because when a tornado came, you could use it. This is the narrative that most of us evangelical Protestants, or at least this has been my experience, we've lived in. So even if you hold on to a what is referred to as a pre-tribulation rapture, that Jesus comes back and gathers the church... Before the wrath of God is poured out on the planet, still you have this understanding that the world's gonna turn against you, uh, that things are gonna go grossly awry, and really just hang on till He takes us out of here. Okay? Now,
1: God is good.
0: This is so deeply embedded, in my opinion in the American Christian psyche that we look for and generate persecution because we lack legitimate persecution. Our brothers and sisters in the body of Christ are getting beheaded. They're getting incarcerated, dispossessed, um, sent out. I mean, they are laying their lives down for the Lord. But if we force ourselves into a meeting and out of order try to have a prayer meeting in a government building, and they shut us down, then we can scream foul. Look, they are, they're, they're like
1: persecuting, us.
0: persecuting Christians. They're, that's, wow, they won't let us pray. Okay. Now, I, pray I, I get it. I get it, but hey, were you praying or were you grandstanding? Are you following the Lord that said, if you pray in your closet... I will publicly take care of you. I mean, these things balance out. So, I'm just saying that in America, we have these instances, you know, where there there is honest-to-goodness, insidious type of persecution, but it's not at the level of persecution, and it's not at the level of what is the normative, that's the key, normative for Christian experience, which means that as American Christians, we are living in the extraordinary, wonderful of a peaceful place where our, our faith can be propagated, and we're also living in the most dangerous place in the world because it is the place where your faith can be most easily seduced out of you. Yes,
1: yes. That's true. It's, it's just real
0: easy to be complacent.
1: Can we look around us? Yeah. yeah.
0: So, all I have to say that part of this journey back is to recapture the truth for ourselves of who we are as a people. That even though we say, Lord, come quickly, even though we are in living hope and expectation, looking for a new heavens and a new earth... We happen to be living in the age of Messiah. God forbid we find ourselves in the place where, or let me put it this way, maybe this analogy works. Suppose that you were in the wilderness and you're collecting manna every day. Every day you're collecting mirac- miraculous manna, every day you see the cloud over the tabernacle, the presence of God's over the tabernacle. You see at night the fire of God's over the tabernacle. Water's getting to you miraculously. And while you're getting the water, and while you're collecting the manna, and while you're looking at the tabernacle, you go, you know, Jacob, when Messiah comes, everything's going to be all right. We won't have to pick up this manna. We'll have our own faucets in heaven, golden faucets. We won't have to go to this Miraculous rock and haul this water for ourselves. You know, in heaven, heaven's all light. We won't have to try to like talk to each other in this firelight from God over the tabernacle. Boy, when Messiah comes, it'll all be better. And so here we are, a redeemed people of God, for whom Christ out of love died, gave himself, went to hell. The underworld conquered death rose from the
1: grave,
0: poured out the Holy Spirit upon us, gave us everlasting life and had us taste powers of the age to come. We get toys from a future age to play with. And we like, boy, I know I got to work in this cube, but when Jesus comes, it'll be okay. Got to vote tomorrow. Maybe somebody good comes in. You know they're all corrupt. But when Jesus comes, it'll be okay. You get the point? We, We need to appreciate and walk in and be present. Being present is a skill that is being lost. So I recall what just came to mind was an old 60 Minutes episode. It's so old that most of these kids back there I don't even know what 60... 60 Minutes was a news program back in the day before we had cable. And in this program, it was a... Thank you. In this program, it was about marriages. And they, they were watching this video, as I recall it, of a husband and wife and the family surrounding. And, and so all this activity is swirling and the wife's talking to the dad, and they're being, you know, recorded. But, but he's just like, his eyes are on the TV. His eyes are on the boob tube. He's, you know, he's like doing things, but his eyes are on the boob tube. And the psychologist says, yeah, if that marriage lasts another year, I'll be surprised. Because the guy wasn't present. And so now we got the present of the whole world at our hand, and... You know, most of us have to go to a chiropractor because this is our new thing. Because we're looking down, not looking up, and we're, we're so busy taking the picture for the post that we forget to look at what's going on around us. You know, I, I'm, uh, even in, 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 like, I had a drive on ODU campus the other day, and, you know, college kids walking, I've got a loud 28-foot truck rattling diesel. I'm coming down street sized sidewalk, and Um, you know,
1: yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah. And they're walking. All of a sudden, it's like, and then it just dawns on them when I'm five feet away because I got earbuds in. You know, they're just not present.
1: Yeah, they're not
0: right. And we can do a similar thing to the age that we've been assigned. You were assigned to live in this century. You know how I know that?
1: Because
0: you're alive, yeah. (laughs) You, You weren't assigned to the last century. You were assigned to this century, this decade, this year, this day. We were assigned to. Because the only divine being who has rulership over time is the Most High creator of the heavens and the earth. that That's his trump card to all the other supernatural beings who claim high Godship. He says, really? How about you do this? How about you tell me what's going to happen? <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: oh, oh, you can't. How about I tell you ahead of time what's going to happen? You try to stop me. You can't do that either. You know why? Because I'm God. That's why.
1: Thank you, God.
0: Amen? So, You're living now because that's what he wanted you to live. Which means that there's something for you now. Always. You are always important. You are always crucial. You are always loved. You are always valued. Because he has you here now. There's something to do. We are disciples of who?
1: The Lord Jesus. Christ.
0: The Lord Jesus. What does it mean to be a disciple? Oh. A
1: fa- Hi.
0: It means to follow your Lord. Yes. Luke chapter 4, verse 16. This is after Jesus has been baptized, after the Holy Spirit's come upon him. After he's encountered the devil in the wilderness and kicked him, he comes into Nazareth. He comes to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim news to the poor, good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he closed up the scroll mid-sentence because the following sentence is the day of vengeance of our God. He stopped short. And then he said, this day, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. The Greek word behind to proclaim good news, that, that phrase, to proclaim good news, one, two, three, four English words, one word in the Greek, euangelizo, euangelizo, which we in English would say evangelize. Oh. Evangelize. Did I, did I type that wrong? Evangelize? No, I did not. So the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to evangelize the poor. Got it? So, these proclamations between evangelized and Caruso proclaim liberty. Acts chapter 1. Luke begins his second volume of salvation history this way. He says, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. i got to stop. Genre, (laughs) I believe, of Acts is history. It's a historical book, like 1 Kings and 2 Kings and 1 2 Samuel. It's history. This is redemptive history. He's not writing a letter. He's not writing a a theological treatise. He's writing salvation history. That's the genre. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Is he done yet? Jesus doing and teaching. No until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands to the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. That's where Luke closes. He says, that last book, that's what happened. That's his little synopsis of Luke. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So, the crucifixion happened in the Passover season. And... Whether you do the calendar where he, he was crucified while the lambs were being slaughtered or he was crucified while they were eating their Passover meal. He was the, Jesus was our Passover. And then after Passover, they have first fruits. And they do a wave offering of barley and they count out seven weeks, 49 days. And then on the 50th day, the wheat harvest is brought as an offering, but that offering isn't grain, it's bread. They bring the product of the produce, the bread. Okay? Now, work out all that significance on your own. That's why it's Pentecost, because 49, 1, Pentecost in the Greek is 50. Okay? And and, and in the Hebrew Bible, it's the Feast of Weeks. The Feast of Weeks. Now, the Feast of Weeks, Pentecost, Not only a harvest festival, a Thanksgiving festival for the late harvest, the wheat harvest, but it became a commemoration of the law being given on Mount Sinai. Now think about Exodus 20, 19 to 20, when the law was given. What were the signs attendant when the law was given? How did God show up? Yeah, fire and a cloud, all this, yeah, all this all this. wind and fire showed up when the law was given. Yeah, and then the voice came out, right? He presented himself alive after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Later in Christian history, there will be this group that crops up, that we still suffer with today, known uh, as Gnostics. And the idea is this real dichotomy where material stuff is bad, spiritual stuff is good, and that Jesus had, you know, he was just a spiritual kind of resurrection. No. now Jesus of Nazareth's dead body came out of the grave alive and interacted with his disciples for 40 days. You could, you could forgive them if he only showed up in a flash and, and they had a two-minute... Can you imagine if, if in the garden was the only time Mary saw the resurrected Lord? And, I mean, how long before someone starts questioning? Are you sure you didn't imagine that? Yeah. you sure you weren't delusional? No, you have a barbecue on the beach. You break bread inside of a locked room. You have conversations. You see the man ride the glory cloud to heaven. You got a testimony. But that testimony isn't sufficient. Think about all that they have seen.
1: I like where it says many proofs.
0: Many proofs. Yeah. My hands. Put your hand on my side. Got any fish? Right? I was impressed. We were talking about the disciples on the road to Emmaus. Yeah. The fact that after Jesus left them, he showed up again where they were. Where they were. Yeah. (laughs) I think that's just great. I have really thought about that before. It's just a lot of fun. Yeah. You ever done that where you've been in one place and then people are heading this way, you know? You're talking to them, they're going this way, and they arrive at the next place and you're already there? That's <laughs> loads of fun. <laughs> I mean, it really is. <laughs> it's a great... I mean, but he wasn't just doing a gag, but I still think that he has a sense of humor. I, I think there's fun in that. It's like, hey, here I am. Yeah, I think that kind of would have been anticlimactic for them to finally realize it was Jesus. They then not, They'd not have any closure after that, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. It's just great. It's great. So he's, but during those forty days he's speaking to them about the kingdom of God. And while they were staying with them, verse four, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said you have heard from me. So think about, and I, I, know, I, this is this is a horse I keep running around the arena. I'm not beating it to death. I just keep, you know, I want you to see this pony, okay? <laughs> Take a good look at it. Think about all that they've experienced. The the haul of fish that would sink a boat. They themselves have gone out and uh, cast out demons, raised the dead, healed the sick. They've been, over the course of three years, baptizing converts. They have seen Jesus perform extraordinary miracles on a mass scale. They saw Him beaten and hung on a cross and buried. They saw Him resurrected and lovingly confront them where they are in their faith at that point in time. You could forgive them for being a little shooken up because they were expecting all things to be right. You know, when Messiah comes, their, their mind didn't say, when Messiah comes, the Gentile nation under whose boot we abide in will beat him and hang him and kill him and bury him. And then they will persecute us for the next some centuries. Okay? That's not what was in their mind. After all of that, after 40 days' worth, he says, oh, the promise of the Father's coming, I want you to stay here in Jerusalem. They don't live in Jerusalem. But he says, hang out. He said, you've heard this promise from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So this was his instruction as they walked toward Gethsemane that he would send a comforter. So they've, they've gone 40 days now. And he says, hang out. Comforter's coming. Then they ask him this question, we'll revisit here in a minute. You know, you're going to restore the kingdom. Verse 8, he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. This is the history of, of the worldwide evangelistic mission of the church. Laid out. That's his outline for Acts. That's what Acts is about, how that gospel moved to these these people groups and these areas. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses. When Jesus started his public ministry, that announcement in Luke, so Luke, Luke puts that in Nazareth as kind of like his homecoming announcement. Remember homecoming in school? You know, your team would start out, the, the, the football team would start out, and they'd go to other schools and play. But then when they came home to play, that was homecoming, right? It was a big deal. Everybody on party dresses, and you go to homecoming. It was a big thing in high school, right? Well, Jesus saying this in Nazareth is like his homecoming unveiling. You know, it leads to this, no prophet has honor in his own home in his own country, right? This kind of a thing. He announces that the Spirit of the Lord is upon him and anointed him to preach good news to the poor. And he takes his disciples through this whole journey. He goes to the crucifixion, burial, resurrection, 40 days in a resurrected body of proof. And then he says, wait. To men, he said, go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. To disciples he said, go find a man of peace in this city and do. To people who who already said, the demons are subject to us in your name. To disciples who so shook the darkness that Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. He tells people like that. It's not enough. It's not all. I got more for you. You're not ready yet. For what you need to do for me. You're an eyewitness. You've eaten with me in my resurrected body, but you do not have, intrinsic to yourself, enough power to do the mission I have for you. you got to wait. It's coming. Just as Jesus was Spirit-anointed to preach good news, so the church was to be Spirit-anointed to evangelize the world. The baptism of the Holy Spirit which is part of your conversion experience. When you got converted, the Holy Spirit came to dwell in you. You became a temple of God. God abided in you. His abiding in you provides the power, provides the capacity to give testimony to the resurrected Jesus Christ so that lost can be saved. That's why it's there. This was the promise of Pentecost you will be my witnesses. Stay in Jerusalem. You're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So, and when you do that, you're going to be my witnesses. That was his promise at Pentecost. You will be my witnesses. This, now, side note on Bible study. Okay? Inspiration of Scripture. We've talked about this. These guys weren't automatic writing. They weren't taking dictation notes, you know? The Holy Spirit speaking, and then we're writing... And the first draft in Greek, that was it. Holy writ, canon, we're good to go, baby. Didn't he have to think about it? No. <laughs> no, there's there's way too much intention. Not that God can't pull that off, but, but the way God interacts with us, the way our God interacts with us, isn't in a channeling, possessive model. It's in a co-laboring model. And when you're studying the New Testament, the New Testament writers are drawing upon a corpus of literature to write down the things that the Spirit is telling them. And that one of the primary corpuses of literature that they're drawing from to address a world that, has, that is speaking Greek across the Mediterranean is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, known as the Septuagint. You'll see it in references with the... This is, I think, ironic... It with Roman numbers, you know, LXX, right? So the, the Greek Old Testament is called the Septuagint, or shorthand, LXX, which is Roman numbers for 70. Okay. One of the ways that you could see where these New Testament writers, whether they're recording someone's speech or where these, where these phrases are coming from, is how these things are written in the Septuagint. These phrases and these words, is how you see... The Testament's tied together. Well, this you will be my witnesses resonates from or comes up from Isaiah 43, verses 11 and 12. I, I am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed. Who does that sound like? (laughs) I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Okay? You will be my witnesses. Good Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 36, verse 24. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. Think about who the prophet is, Ezekiel. Where is he? He's in Babylon. Who's in Babylon? Judah's in Babylon. They've been taken out of the land. Why have they been taken out of the land? because of their apostasy, because of their idol worship. The Judah, the Jew, quote-unquote, that comes back into the land is dramatically different than the one that went out of the land. They became ultimately committed Yahwists. They knew why it was they were suffering as they were because they had abandoned loyalty to Yahweh, the God Most High, creator of the heavens and the earth, their covenant God they had begun worshipping the Baals. They'd worship these other gods. They saw Israel taken out by the Assyrians, and, and now they've seen the temple destroyed, and they've been taken out. You talk about a discouraged, beaten down people, and they're being promised the end of the age. I'm going to return you to the land. We're going to make everything right. I will pour out the Spirit. You will come in, and all this is going to be gone your idol worship, your memory of it, your tendency toward it. I'm going to seal you. I'm going to put my law in you. This is the promise of the Father. I'm going to pour out the Spirit, and then Israel's is going to come back into the land. Now, when Judah came back from Babylon, that was not the return. That was not the end of the diaspora. That was just Judah. Israel's been gone, was gone, is gone. Even with the, with the, with the modern state of Israel... I'll have to check my figures, but last time I checked, we had more Jews living in New York City than we had living in Israel. Okay? So the diaspora is still an extent. We we have not seen uh, a fulfillment, a completion of, you will all dwell in my land, right? But then this begs a different question, which is how are we seeing this? Now, out of Ezekiel 36, you turn into one of the most interesting chapters in the Bible for me, which is Ezekiel 37. How many of y'all read The Vision of the Valley of the Dry Bones? It's, it's like out of a horror film. I mean, this is the most, this is the most startling uh, revelation. Uh, he comes into this valley of dry bones. God asks him if the bones can live. Ezekiel says, "Well, you know, (laughs) I can answer that question." And then he commands the bones. The bones begin to, you know, rattle together and stand up. And then he, then he prophesies flesh on the bones, and then skin on the bones, and then it's just a bunch of dead bodies. How horrific! Having this vision. And then he says, "Prophesy to the wind," and the wind, the ruach, prophesy to the spirit. And then they all stand up, a mighty army. That's the vision. And though it sounds like a resurrection because it's a resurrection in part, it's not about the resurrection at all. No. Not, that's not what it's about. Ezekiel 37, verse 11. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost and indeed we are, and we are indeed cut off. They are in a hopeless situation. Not only Judah, but all Israel. They're all lost, they're all dispossessed, they're all hopeless. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you up from your graves. This is using the motif of a resurrection to speak about coming out of Gentile nations back to the land. These graves are where they've been sent off to, where they're dwelling in hopelessness. I will open your graves and raise you up from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you up from your graves, O my people. Now, if this was just about the resurrection, don't you think they would know that? That's like a duh, right? Oh, I tell you what, you know, when you die and I resurrect you, then you'll know I'm God. Well, duh. (laughs) You know, yeah, it'll be rather apparent right then. Great white throne, nobody will have a doubt, right? But look at this, verse 14. I will put my spirit within you and you shall live and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken. I will do it, declares the Lord. So you see how in this in this Hebrew Bible promise of an outpouring of the spirit is this expectation of Things being set right, coming back into the land, everything being okay, this messianic age. Joel chapter 2, verse 1. Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. Now, this is not the same as the kingdom of heaven is at hand, but it sounds really close. Blow the trumpet, the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. That's how Joel 2 1 starts. And as you go through Joel, what winds up inside of Joel? And it shall come to pass, verse 28, afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your daughters, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions, even on the male and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit. It's going to pour out all the way down to the lowest class of people in your land. It's going to go all the way down to the slaves. It's going to be that gracious, that generous. Well, what time period are we talking about? Right at the cusp of the day of the Lord is coming. This is when the Spirit's going to be poured out. Right? It's right here. It's right at hand. I'm going to pour out my Spirit. I'm going to bring you back in the land. Verse 30. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. Sounds like end times to me. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape, who escape, as the Lord has said, among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. This escape, folks, is not the rapture. This escape is escape from judgment. This escape is salvation. This escape is coming to God. This spirit coming is in times stuff. So when Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father because you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit this is the kind of stuff that's living in their head. This is the promise and hope of their prophets. And the Spirit is coming. The Spirit is coming. So their question is completely logical. When He gives them this promise, He says, they say, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? So this is it, right? I mean, that was a pretty bad day when you got crucified. Then the next two weren't so great either. But you're here. and now, this, So this is it, right? And he says, shit, not for you to know. <laughs> not for you to know. That day is coming, but the Spirit's coming. Now what this tells us is that we are very myopic when it comes to prophecy. There are layers to prophecy, and we, need to, we, we see them like a, like a Photoshop layer, where it's just, you know, all these layers are layered out, and then you see the whole picture, and that's how we see it, flat. It's all there. So, that happens, this happens, that happens. I know where I am in history. Except that, you know, we're three plus one dimensional creatures. And, and so we're looking at it like this, but God's not. And God is looking at it like this because He has mastery and control over all time. And He's seeing all the same promises, but there's a lot of stuff that happens in between. There's a lot of stuff that goes on. Okay? Okay? And so it's not a discouragement to be humble about promises of the Lord's return. Same God had holy men of God write the scriptures in the Old Testament as he is, same type. In other words, spirit anointed people wrote scripture in the New Testament. He works prophecy the same way as he did. So, yes. We have ideas of what's being promised, but we lack a huge amount of detail and specificity.
1: But you know what? I haven't seen the rapture yet, but I'm looking forward to it and hope all the time. So there you go, you know. I I, I don't know when it's going to come. And look, I have my ideas, but that doesn't make my ideas right, but it doesn't matter. It's going to come.
0: We are no different than disciples of Jesus 2 millennia ago. Our interest and the details is no different. Their interest in the details was just as high. We just read it. Will you at this time restore the kingdom? Well, how about before the crucifixion? They're sitting down, you know, he's turned table. If I remember the, the, the chronology, right? He's turned tables over and the whole bit, and they're like, uh, hey, you know, Herod did a good turn here. See how pretty the temple is? Come on, chill out, Jesus. It's, you know, it's a nice it's a nice it's a, it's a nice building. And he says, You see that building? Time's coming where one stone won't be stacked on top of another. It's all going away. And so they say, well, tell us. Matthew 24, verse 3. Tell us when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age. Now, remember what I shared with you before about living in hope, but missing the extraordinary wonderful? These are Jewish believers who have been brought up in the expectation of Messiah, they are walking planet Earth with Jesus of Nazareth, the raiser of the dead, the healer of the blind and deaf, the one who feeds multitudes out of a loaf and a couple fishes. Okay? The one that saw him walk on water, that did all this stuff, and they... What's the sign that you're coming? Obviously, I'm not Jesus, you know? I mean, my response would have been, well, I'm here. <laughs> so he's gracious, right? He answers the question. What's the sign of your coming in the end of the age? They were just as curious about it as we are. Okay? Next up, a general history of humanity. And you can plug this, and this will be true in the end times. It is true now, which are the end times. And it was true then, which, well, we're end times. Matthew 24, verse 4. Jesus answered them and said, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. Now, I didn't live through World War II. The wars we have now are horrific enough. But... Uh, you know, aside from, I think, Ed, Eddie might be the only person who has lived on a planet during total warfare. We haven't seen it. The wars that we have are bad enough.
1: We didn't know, in this nation, here in America, we didn't know if we were going to lose that war and we were going to be taken as slaves over to Germany. Yeah. We didn't know.
0: Had no idea of the outcome. No idea of the outcome.
1: We would. We. we we fought against it. But, yeah. I mean, you
0: know, but uh, but I mean. So my my point. I was a
1: young person. Yeah. But it had to be more scary for people that had more intellect than I did and better
0: Yeah. Bit. The more the more informed, the ones reading newspapers. My point is that news reports of wars are news reports of wars. They are. That's what they are. They're horrible things. We should keep people in prayer. See that you are not alarmed. Don't let this shock you. Things running at an even keel is the oddity. That's the problem. We are living in the oddity, and we have been living in the oddity so long, we think it's the normal. See that you're not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there'll be famines and earthquakes in various places. You can find that in Genesis. You can find that in Exodus. You can find that in 1 Samuel all the way through Chronicles. Verse 7 I'm talking about. You can find that in the 1600s. You can find that in the 1900s. You can find that right now in the 21st century. Nation rising against nation. Kingdom against kingdom. Famines. Earthquakes. In various places. All these are but the beginning of birth pains. So you know what? We're at the start of labor.
1: Maybe maybe we're towards the end
0: of labor. We could be. Yeah, could be. The the point of it is, we're in labor. The whole creation is groaning, waiting for the manifestation of the sons of God. We're in labor. Verse 9. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Oh, glad I asked the question, Jesus. Put yourself there. i tell you again. It's not a scary thing, it's just a reality. Verse 9 is the norm of Christianity to be the off scouring of the world, that the world would hate you. And Christianity isn't a faith that you hold simply because it's comfortable or just when it's popular. We have insidious challenges to it in our culture, whether or not you can witness in the workplace. Well, can I share Jesus? I might lose my job. It's a possibility. You have to walk with wisdom. But the reality is, over the course of Christian history and Christianity in the world, the norm is tribulation. The question of whether or not, and I know we talk about the tribulation, but really, for us American Christians, that is just an academic question. The reality of it is is that Christians have been living in tribulation for 2,000 years. Okay? It's a reality that needs to be held on to, Because it's difficult to prepare for hard times when you never face them. And it's difficult to to enjoy or appreciate good times if you're paranoid about hard times. So they're both bad. I know some people who just live in, in expectation of gloom and doom. They're so upset things are so good, they'd just rather somebody whip them so they could prove their faith in Jesus. Okay, well, why not just worship the Lord for the blessing you have today and expect for the grace to come when he comes? But you have to settle your heart to be committed to Christ, regardless of the cost. Amen. Okay, so let's leave aside the theological issues of once saved, always saved, and let's hold on to the reality of believing loyalty in Yeshua, regardless of the cost. Faithfulness. Verse 10, why? This is Jesus talking, red letters. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. If so, if you don't love your brother, God's not among you. You don't know God. Christians hating each other? Oh, oh we've seen that. Thousands burnt at the stake. Thousands lost in wars over theological issues. The Pope, no Pope. The Calvin, no Calvin. You know. I mean, we'll go at it over dogmatic issues because we know how to prove who's right. If my sword's sharper, I'm right. And God proved I was right because my weapons are better. You know, that's why we're the only superpower is because God loves America more than the rest of the world. I
1: don't
0: think so. No. Right? <laughs> many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because, of lo- because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. When we stop following God's moral code for a simple way of saying that, when we stop following the prime directive, love God while your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself, lawlessness increases, and then, you know, we just don't give a care. We just don't care. We don't care, and things go bad. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Please do not run to the security of dispensationalism. Please don't run to the security of once saved, always saved. Please don't run away from the words of Jesus through some theological trick that gets you out of believing loyalty for all of your life. Don't Amen. cash in on God. Amen. Stay committed. Amen. Because the one who endures to the end... This is not works. This is faith. I'm saved by faith. Absolutely are. Keep the faith.
1: You know, there's different ideas. You know what? I'm not going by the ideas. I'm going to do the best I can.
0: I want to get there. Here's a little peek ahead. You need the Holy Spirit because your testimony for Christ will not go unchallenged. And you need the comfort and fortitude and the wisdom of the Holy Spirit of God to get through the opposition. Without Him, you will not. And we need to be about God's business. We need to be about the Father's business. And we cannot do it without... How extraordinary is our mission? You can't do it on your own. You can't do it in your natural talents. You can't do it with your life experience. You can't do it with your training. These men walk with Jesus. He taught them directly. They had life experience. They were eyewitnesses and they were trained and equipped. And they were not equipped enough without the Holy Spirit of God to make them witnesses of the resurrection to all the earth. Okay? We belong to the same body. The one who endures to the end will be saved. Verse 14, this exciting part, you ready? Come soon, Lord. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. And then the end will come. So here's this truth intention, The times the Father holds in His hand. But we still, as fallen people, I think are set with this critical pagan mindset of fatalism that, that throws off responsibility and says, well, God's plan, God knows. Well, God, and we just throw it off to God. He'll work it out. I can just sit on my keister, and he'll come back eventually, because if there's this, in our mind, in our thinking, there's this calendar day. God has a big old millennial calendar. Not the generation, but, you know, a thousand years long or whatever, you know? Maybe it's two millennia, maybe it's five, maybe it's 20. We don't know. But he's got, you know, he's got these calendars, these months all laid out. Oh, okay, I have, oh, the moon's, are you sure the moon's coming? Okay, the moon's coming up this day, you know. He's you know, all the way down there, and he's got this one circled in red. Okay, Jesus, that's the day, right there. You don't see it that way? I mean, it's, it's maybe maybe overblown. That's kind of how we see it. Just, this, as if we don't have a part to play in either according and shrinking that calendar or expanding that calendar as if we don't have a part in the redemptive history of God as to when that occurs. God has declared His will. He wants all men to be saved. How are they going to be saved if they don't hear? And how are they going to hear if no one preaches? And how are they going to preach if they're not sent? As it is written, beautiful are the feet of those who carry the good news. Right? Right. This gospel, this good news will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So we do have a part to play in seeing his kingdom come. We don't determine the time. It's not like, oh, that you know, he determines the time. But there's a harvest to take in, and he's the Lord of the
1: harvest. And if we don't do our part, we'll hear about
0: it. And if we don't do our not, not only that... If there's a huge job to be done and only two people are doing it, it's just going to take longer.
1: I don't, I don't maybe.
0: It's maybe just, gonna, it's
1: just
0: I, I'm just talking simple logistics on a job site. If you've got a job that takes eight man hours and you throw four people at it, two clock hours go by and the job's done. You throw half a man at it, he's there for two days. Okay? Well. Okay. We need what I'm saying is we, we need, need to, to hold we need to hold it in tension. We cannot abdicate our part and just say God has His plan. It'll happen Absolutely. when it happens.
1: I agree a hundred
0: Amen. Second Peter three, verse nine. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come. Like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be in it will be exposed, since all these things are are thus to be dissolved. Everything that we know, everything that we see, it all burns. The world that's going to be is not the world that we have. What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting for, that's that part where God knows the day. Waiting for, God knows the day, I'm waiting for it. Waiting for and hastening. That's the part that gets busy to bring it closer, the coming of the day of God. Wow, what a father to allow us the honor and privilege of being involved in his kingdom business to that degree. He determines the the course and the day, but he gives us the opportunity To hasten that day as we live our lives to see those come to repentance while he's being patient. Waiting for and hastening to the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Amen? Amen. That is our expectation. That new heavens and a new earth. Yet he is graciously, just as in the start of the church history, where the disciples said, Are you going to restore the kingdom now? And Because they know the promises. They know the prophecies. The Spirit's coming. The kingdom comes to Israel. all's is good. And he says, just the front part. That's going to happen. That's in God's hand. But I'm going to give you the front part. Spirit's coming. I'm giving you the front part. Ephesians 1, verse 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, you were sealed with the promise, uh, promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee or the down payment of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. That Holy Spirit abiding in you is that down payment that if listened to will carry you to the end of the day. He will carry you there to the praise of His glory. Hebrews mixes this good news with a warning. Hebrews 6, verse 4. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted of the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit. We're talking about saved, spirit-baptized people. And have tasted of the goodness of the Word of God and powers of the age to come. What we are tasting, what we are living on, the spiritual food we're living on, are the powers of the age to come. That new heavens and the new earth that we just read about from Peter. Well, it's impossible for those people when they've fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying again the Son of God to their own harm and holding them up to contempt. This is the only path, in other words. It's the only path. You follow the Holy Spirit. You follow the deposit that He's put in you. You turn away from that. There's no other path. There's no other way except through Jesus. Verse 9. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name and serving the saints as you still do. Occupy until I come. Occupy until I come. Be about the Father's business. Be looking for opportunities to share the saving grace of Jesus with those around you. Verse 11, And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. This requires the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. That ceiling and down payment that you can walk in your inheritance. So, Lord willing, next time we will begin to look at the preparation for Pentecost, and part of that major preparation for this event in Acts chapter one verse fourteen. All these, these were the apostles and the disciples, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers, the body of Christ was of one accord and devoted themselves to prayer. That was the groundwork for what occurred in Acts chapter 2, which, as I said, Lord willing, we'll get into next time. Amen? Thank
1: you, Lord. Amen. Thank you, Nick.
0: Thank you.